this is my awesome, wait, no, sorry. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, this is not some perverted marriage lesson. Um, we're going to actually try to bring the word of God here. So I'm going to try to keep that image out of my head. You know, please help me. Um, <clears throat> we're going we're gonna to lead you guys into the Christmas season with an encouraging scripture out of the book of Luke. when you're really good at sarcasm people don't even know it right Um, that's a that's a curse on me Um, I'm going to start in uh, as I said verse 11 or chapter 11 verse 33 says no one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl instead they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is also full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. When Jesus had finished speaking, A Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table, but the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees! Because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogue and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. One of the experts of the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things... You insult us also. And Jesus replied, And you experts of the law, woe to you! Because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you! Because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts of the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. Well, a, uh, a, a great passage and a great text. 
And uh, the reason that we, we, we had such a lengthy text today is because uh, when we study our Bible, we recognize that sometimes in the middle of an account in Jesus' life or in some of it, we'll find the meaning buried in there in terms of what exactly the, the prophet or Jesus or the writer was meant to tell us. There's some great examples in that, right? You certainly have uh, the one we studied out recently, which was the, the shameless neighbor. He comes to the other neighbor at house and says, I've got a visitor, I need some bread. You know, please give me bread, give me bread, give me bread. And it says in the middle of it that he answers not because he uh, wanted to or had a good heart about it, but because this man had a shameless attitude about asking and asking and asking. And so the lesson we take away from that passage a few weeks ago was our role in our job is to ask and ask and ask and never to give up. Here it's a little bit different, right? And we see it actually bracketed in three different ways. As in the introduction in this light and dark, which we studied out a little bit on Tuesday night at midweek service, you know, we come away with this idea that there's an inside and an outside to all of us, and that there is a light that is meant to shine, and when it comes from the outside or it shines on the inside, it needs to be the same. And that we, uh, we understand that God's intent is that we all, well, God's intent is that we don't hide. That there is no inside and outside. That we polish both the inside and the outside. Throughout this text, with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, isn't this exactly what Jesus is really addressing in a very direct and a purposeful and actually an offensive way is this idea of there's an outside and there's an inside to your life and it needs to match and be one and the same. And then in chapter 12 and verse 1, maybe to steal away from the message from next week or maybe at midweek service here, Jesus reminds us once again as these crowds are beginning to trample around him he says listen you know what first off I told you a lesson in the beginning about light and darkness about that on the inside and that on the outside and then I gave you an actual flesh and blood example an interaction with Pharisees and with teachers of the law which exhibit all the qualities when they do not match and now I'm telling you very pointedly you need to be aware of the yeast of the Pharisees which is what hypocrisy when we get to preach, we all search for that one big idea. I wonder what I should preach on this morning. Do you think it might be hypocrisy? Probably. This seems to be the message that Jesus has here. And so that really is what we are going to talk about this morning. Quite the Christmas message, right? Maybe not, but we, as we walk through by the Holy Spirit, the text, perhaps there's something you and I should take out of this idea of hypocrisy. Maybe there's something you and I should really have in our own lives examine exactly see where we stand with regard to hypocrisy. With the help of the scriptures here, I think we're going to look at two different areas Tim and I are going to talk about today. One is the indicators of hypocrisy, and the second one's going to be really the results of hypocrisy. Because both are important to us. Whether we're young or old in the faith or have never read the Bible before, we understand hypocrisy, what it is. And so it's important for us to understand and have it defined. Now, uh, a couple days ago, I was over at the, the pool swimming. And I was having a chance to, to, to talk to a guy, and we started into this discussion about worldviews, right? Started as a political discussion, ended up as a religious discussion. And so we, we talked about how far, you know, America's drifting this way or that way. And we began to talk really about us as Christians, how it sort of in one hand doesn't seem to matter. Because as Christians, we know that our worldview is radically different than that of that around us now. And I don't care if it's Soviet communism from the 1970s, the 1950s, I don't care if it's socialism, I don't care if it's conservatism, if it's materialism, capitalism. I promise you, whatever worldview the world offers us is going to be radically different than what Christianity has to offer. So it's inconsequential in one sense. 
But what we see on display here is with Jesus and his interaction with these teachers of the law and the, and the Pharisees is something we'll see more and more as we move through the scriptures is that for you and I to embrace Christianity or a God worldview, it is always going to be a retching, powerful, rending. It's got to be something that shakes us apart. It's got to be something that tears the very fabric of what we see and think we believe. And it's got to be something so different. You see this here, don't you? Because there's no blending with Christianity. There's no syncretism. We knew that from the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. We can't walk into Christianity and kind of put old clothes or new clothes over on the top of our old clothes and say we've changed when nothing has really changed on the inside. It's always going to be this radical tearing of some sort of a social fabric in our own life. And when Jesus does most of his ministry up in the hinterlands of Judea and not down in Jerusalem, there's a purpose and a reason for that. He is at once trying to distance himself so completely from the existing religious and social strata that he has, it's in, it, you have to understand this is something radically, completely different. Boy, it's on display right here, isn't it? And I love the chuckle from everybody in the office. We love it when Jesus gets his dukes up, right? And it's like, and you teach us of the law, you know? Here it comes, man. And it's like, whoa, hold on a second. Why are you offending us? And so we have in this story here, we have this account of Jesus' life. We have Jesus speaking, and then we have people that are offended by it, right? And those are, the, in this case, the religious leaders. But if we're really going to change today, we have to ask ourselves, who is the offended? Are you disturbed to be offended? Does it bother you to be offended by what Jesus has to say? You know, if you're offended, it's kind of like a good thing in one sense, and that it means that Jesus' words are supposed to be having, or having some sort of a measured impact in your life. So this morning, as you hear the message, if you're offended, you've got to ask yourself, who are you aligning yourself with? Is it the Pharisees? Well, maybe it is, and that's not a good thing, right? But I think at the end of the day, we all recognize there's hypocrisy in all of our lives, and that's something that we need to deal with. The title of the message today, you probably put hypocrisy and just underline that two or three times. That's what we're going to speak to you today. But I've got a kind of a fun name for it, because originally this message was supposed to be Tim, Cal, and myself. And so, uh, unfortunately, Cal had a medical thing that came up. He thought he wasn't going to be able to speak today, so it turned into be just Tim and myself. But still, I want to name the title of the sermon today, The Three Prophets. Amen? How's that? Now, I'm not saying prophet, big P. I mean someone who brings truth. That's what the prophet does. And so today, as we look through this passage of Scripture, we're going to deal with hypocrisy like we ever have a choice in dealing with the Word of God and Scriptures today. We have no choice today but to deal with the truth and to present the truth in all of its glory the way that Jesus has today. Amen? All right. So if, if, if we want to call that the introduction, uh, I, or I'll kind of call this my first point, I, I'm going to call it generosity, justice, and the love of God. Yeah. You know, Bill said three prophets, and, and you know, the thing that strikes me when he says that the, when we see Jesus' Jesus's passion here, this message is it's worthy of more than one you know, prophet. This, this needs to be said over and over again. And you look at the way Jesus uses this word, woe, woe to you, woe to you. He's very passionate about this. And you know, as Bill said, we all understand hypocrisy. And Jesus uses um, some very familiar imagery and language. If you've been coming around to church or if you're familiar with your Bible, you really understand this inside out. You understand this light, dark but, you know, what's really unique about this scripture is just the, the way Jesus comes after it with so much passion. He, does, he wastes no time going after this guy that invited him to lunch, right? And 
You know, Jesus, throughout the New Testament, he encounters a lot of sin. He encounters a lot of sinners. You know, I'm not by any means suggesting that we stack rank our, our sin and try to measure one against the other. But, you know, in, in John 8, when, when an adulterous woman is brought before Jesus, you know, what does Jesus do? He goes, woe to you, you adulterous woman. No. You know, he corrects her. He rebukes her. He sends her on her way. Go and sin no more. And when he encounters Levi, uh, the, the betrayer of his people at the tax booth, woe to you, tax collector, extortioner of your people, you're a traitor. No, he doesn't do any of that, right? He corrects him, he calls him, he pulls him towards repentance. You know, and I'm sure that repentance is available to the Pharisees as well, but it's just really hard to dig it out of this passage. And in fact, in verse 44, he kind of takes it to the mat, as we used to say. He says, he says you guys are like unmarked tombs that people walk over and don't even know it. And if you were a Jew at that time, you understood that an unmarked tomb was a, was a big hazard, right? Because the Mosaic law said you couldn't come into contact with dead. So to come into contact with an unmarked tomb, even accidentally, would, would really defile you in the eyes of the Mosaic law as compared to this very super, superficial and, and minuscule defilement that, that the Pharisees were trying to pin on Jesus over this washing of the hands nonsense, right? Um, and Jesus is, a, I think he's essentially trying to say to us here that, you know, you guys are worried about small things when in fact this is a life and death matter. You know, and in the case of the Pharisees, you guys are full of death, and you carry that death to the people that follow you unwittingly, right? You know, so what do we do about this, right? The inside is messed up, right? But, you know, in the midst of all of this rebuke, Jesus throws us a lifeline. He says in verse 41, he says, Now as for what is inside of you, this, this place that's currently dark and wicked, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Well, then I guess we're off the hook, right? We're, 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 all, we're all here at the Hampton Road Church of Christ. We, we preach tithing unapologetically, you know, amen. We, uh, we take up a contribution for the poor in, at midweek. You know, we, we, uh, we, uh, we give our special contribution. We give blood, <laughs> you know. You know, we are generous by any, by any measure of the word, you know. And, and uh, you know, I'm grateful for that. And God is pleased with that. He tells the Pharisees in verse 42 that, you know, this, this idea of you guys tithe on your mint and your garden herbs, that's not a rebuke. You know, he goes on to say, keep doing it. Don't neglect one for the other. You know, we do these things, and that, that's, that's great, and it, it pleases God. But I think it's a trap if I'm going to sit there and stay there. You know, in, in verse 41 of the NIV, which is what I read from, it says, be generous to the poor and all things will be clean to you. In the New American Standard Bible, it says it a little differently. It says, give that which is within as charity, and all things will be clean to you. Now, that's a different, that's a different statement. You know, and, and Jesus, he never leaves us hanging. He goes on in verse 42 as he's talking to the, the Pharisees about their tithing. He tries to illustrate to them, you're tithing, but you're neglecting justice and the love of God. Right? And I think there's, this, there's a connect, something about this giving from within and justice and the love of God. There's a connection there. This justice, this word that translates to, to justice here is the same word elsewhere in the New Testament that translates to judgment. I think, uh, I think John 7.24, don't judge by mere appearances, but judge righteous judgment. There's your inside out again, right? Um, and it's the same word. 
And it, it's kind of wrapped up in this idea of almsgiving from, from, from the, the Hebrew tradition. It's, it's not just giving, but it's this intense desire to, through your giving, through your actions, through your life, to see the righteousness of God done in, in your life, in the lives of others, in, in, in the things around you. And there's a, there's, a, there's a gap there between generosity and this other stuff, this justice and mercy of God. And generosity is great. Don't neglect generosity. We, we, we are to be generous, but we can't stop there. There's something else that God is calling us to. And, you know, I don't know exactly what, the, what that is. I don't know exactly what it looks like, but I, I'm, I have no shortage in my own life of what it doesn't look like. You know, a lot, a lot of you know that we, uh, we have breakfast pretty regularly on, on Friday mornings. Bill's there, uh, Cal's there, Neil's there, Kurt, Kirk, Paul Hutchins. Uh, you know, I'm, I know I'm missing somebody. There's a lot of guys that show up. It's awesome. But about a year ago, this other guy shows up, and he's sitting at a table off to the side. We don't know him, but you know, we're good Christian men, so we invite him to have uh, breakfast with us. He comes over. He has breakfast with us. He keeps coming back. Very interesting guy. Brings his Bible, shares the word with us. He has some interesting insights. You know, but in his Bible bag, he also has a lot of other stuff. And, and I, get the, I get the feeling that it's probably most of his stuff is in the bag, right? And he shows up on foot. He leaves on foot. Um, he looks a little bit draggled. I don't think he has a home. And he doesn't tell us this, but that's the, that's the impression I get. You know, and he never asks us to buy him breakfast, but we do. You know, we feed him. We get him coffee. Um, he accepts it graciously. And we, we have this fellowship with this guy. Well, about a week ago, he happens to mention that his birthday's coming up. And, and Bill, being the good-hearted guy that he is and the thoughtful guy that he is, he gets the guy a card. So he shows up this past Friday, Bill does, and he gets there before this gentleman that I'm talking about shows up. And, hey, guys, I got a card. Uh, let's sign the card. We're passing the card around. We're signing the card, feeling good about ourselves. We're sticking money in the card. We stick the card in the envelope, set it on the table. The guy shows up. Hey, man, how you doing? We continue our discussion. We were discussing this text, actually, ironically. Um, and, uh, you know, at a break in the conversation, Bill says, hey, man, we know it's your birthday. We want to sing happy birthday. He's like, oh, thanks. We sing him happy, happy birthday. Hand him the card. Oh, guys, you shouldn't have got the card. Oh, you didn't have to do this, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, I'm not going to pull my brothers into this, but, but I, I will tell you that right around this time, inside me somewhere, and I won't say it was at the foremost of my thoughts, but somewhere inside me was a little voice saying, you know, Tim, you're a pretty good guy. You know, look at this guy. You know, he's not like you. He's, uh, he's not in your social circle. He doesn't go to your church. But look at you. You're, you're giving to him. You're feeding him. You've given him rides. You know, you guys are great, right? He opens the car, and his, he sees the, the things we've written and the, and the, and the, the money and and his face changes. I mean, he, you can tell that he is moved. And he gets quiet. And he just says this one word. He just kind of sh- gently shakes his head and he says, family. And I was <laughs> harshly convicted. And the more I think about it, the more I'm convicted. Because this guy has the, has the depth of spirit and the depth of heart to reach out and see me as a brother, as a, as, a, as a family member. And we're not talking about Christian, non-Christian. We're talking humanity here, right? But when it comes right down to it, as much as I may or may not have given this guy, as good as I may or may not have been to this guy, I don't see him as family. I see him 
as the object of my generosity. There's a gap between generosity and the justice, righteous judgment and love of God. And I don't know exactly what needs to be done about this in my own life, but I do know from this text that it is not to be ignored. Amen. Um, I think I wanted to talk through some of the effects of hypocrisy. And, uh, you know, I appreciate Tim's comments because it really should point out, it does to me, again, how far away I am from having a heart that is like God, this idea of justice, this idea of everything we do. And this is what Jesus is driving at. It There's a, there's a purpose to be more like God. And we've missed the boat if we reduce it down to events or circumstances or things or and boy, I'll tell you what, it's, it's convicting when you realize how far away from God you really are. But there's a long-term effect of this hypocrisy. And I think we can't mistake that. We can't understand. We can't give ourselves a pass with it. We can't sit back and say, wow, I just, I just need to get out to this maybe after the new year. There's long-term effects, like there are in most things spiritually. Every sin in the Bible that Jesus uh, addresses, every sin that God commands us, there's a reason for it in there. And it's not because God's in the, the, the mood to go ahead and restrict behaviors. It's not that he thinks that he wants to tell us what to do, and he's the boss, and the sooner we figure that out, the better off life's going to be. He understands that life is meant to be lived according to his word because it gives life itself. And if we don't address hypocrisy in our life, the long-term effects, if, it's like with every other sin is going to have a consequence down the road for us. And the first consequence is we live a life that's religious and not repentant. We become, quote-unquote, righteous, but we're not real. There's no depth to our life. You know, I think in this text, when we go further on to the teachers of the law, and we realize that uh, in verse 47, when Jesus confronts them, he says, Woe to you, you build monuments to the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Therefore, your witnesses that you approve the deeds of your fathers, they kill the prophets, and you build their monuments. Boy, this is a toe-stubber of a passage here. We're not really even sure what to make of this. But I think my point here, this idea of being religious and not repentant, or being righteous but not really real, I thought through, you know, in today's world, if I were to ask you what's your, world, your favorite monument or name a monument, you know, we'll come up with some great examples. If you go to Virginia Beach, for an example, on the boardwalk, they built a, uh, a monument down there to naval aviation, which has got a special place in my heart, having been in that community at one point in my life. And to see the names of people there, uh, to see the, the different aircraft and the different conflicts we've been involved in and the role that naval aviation played, play, it, it brings a sense of pride, right? And it brings a sense of connection, and it brings a sense of inspiration. And for many of us, we have other people. If you go up to the Washington Monument, or perhaps Lincoln is the most dramatic monument that we all know of, where we've got Lincoln sitting on that that, uh, that, that, that chair, and we come away with his, his idea again, maybe even what Tim had alluded to in, in a secular sense, but really true in our society of this idea of bringing justice, right, to the world and seeing things that's not about him, but, but to try to unify a nation around themes of, of in, that, in that day and age, this idea of slavery. It's a powerful monument, testimony to that. Well, now, if we apply that to this idea of building a monument to a prophet, right? So pick your favorite prophet, Ezekiel. Let's go build a monument to Ezekiel, you know, about all the great things and how Ezekiel inspired us to it. And you realize that it's not the same by any stretch of the imagination. That Ezekiel didn't come and do something great. Ezekiel came and he called people to repentance. Do you understand what I'm saying? He didn't invent a cure for polio. 
Ezekiel didn't come up with some, some, some incredible social movement to change the face of the world. His, in fact, his job was exactly the opposite. It was to bring glory to God through his life, not through his life, and to bring people to repentance. And if we were to measure the life of Ezekiel by the same worldly standards we would for those heroes in naval aviation, or maybe Lincoln himself, we would say he was an abject failure. Would you not agree? What was God's intended, stated purpose for his preaching? To bring a nation to repentance, in which he failed and failed and failed. So you see the hypocrisy, the religious act of building a, 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 a monument to a great prophet. It's the idea of, look how great a prophet he is, but there's no repentance that's been delivered in that person's heart. And so here back in the day, they killed him when we build this monument to it. It's like, that's not what God wants at all. He doesn't want honor to go to Ezekiel. He wants your heart to change. And if we walk down this road of not really dealing with the hypocrisy in our life, we will get ourselves so confused about what even the point and the purpose of church is. And don't we see that today? We build monuments for ourselves. We build monuments for those who've gone before us. We honor their, their memories, and yet we do nothing to change our hearts. Instead of spending energy and expending money on monuments to these prophets, they should have been on their face in humble repentance and recognized the guilt of their own sin before God. I think for us to go there, and if we wait long enough and we never deal with this hypocrisy in our life, we'll be like every other religious movement that's occurred on the face of the earth. We will age out. We will become a group that has no power. We'll become a group that honors ourselves and builds monuments. And believe it or not, one day you'll call a man like Bill Throne to come and sell your church because there's no longer members to support it. This is what I do for a living. And somehow or another I've gotten into churches, and maybe it's been a subtle reminder for me to deal with hypocrisy in my life. But when I take on churches after church, when I get calls from ministry guys saying, we've got a beautiful church, can you sell it for us? We've got 15 members and nobody to fill the pews, and nobody to pay the mortgage, and nobody to pay the light bills. And I go there, and I open up books, and I see these, these, these incredible family albums where they had these building fund drives, and we had the first minister and the plank owners, and there's the plaque on the wall. And I almost come to tears because I say, the energy and the effort that went into doing this, and it's nothing It's going to dust because there's no repentance. None preached, devolves into hypocrisy, and you have a self-supporting monument to what? To nothing godly, that's for sure. And if we don't deal with hypocrisy in our lives, the way Jesus is commanding us, we too will be building monuments and missing repentance. I think the second thing I see here is that there is, creates scatterers and not gatherers. Now, during our conversations at breakfast, and you know, the title of the message, of course, Three Prophets, and that makes it sound like just Tim and myself and Cal were involved in creating the lesson, but it's not true. You know, it was Friday morning, we had Neil there, we had our friend that was there, we have many other people that chime in, so I can't even remember who brought this point up, but they thought that hypocrisy is the ultimate scatterer. Is this not true? Is this not the number one complaint you get out of people when they're trying to make excuses for not coming to church? And we all understand it's an excuse, right? But it's true! I'm not going to church, it's full of hypocrites. People understand that and they know that. And here when Jesus is addressing these guys, he talks about this. He says, listen, you know, down there in verse 52, he says, Woe to you experts in the law. You've taken away the key of knowledge. You don't go in yourself and you hindered those who are going in. That's an incredibly indicting statement. 
Look up a little bit further there in verse 46. Woe also to you experts in the law. You load people with burdens that are hard to carry, yet you yourselves don't touch these burdens with one of your fingers. Hey, I mean, on the way in the door, you know, uh, let's talk real quickly just about this idea of uh, the eyes being the lamp of the body, right? Hang with me. I think we'll get back to this point I'm trying to make here. But, you know, the common, we have two common interpretations of that. One of is from another text where it talks about, uh, you know, let your little light shine. It's this idea of our job is to be a lamp. That's not what this passage talks about at all. We understand that, right? It talks about the inside and the outside. And it says that the eyes are the lamp of the body. And if the eyes are good, right, the inside is good. Now, I've interpreted that commonly for a long time, and maybe it's correct, is that the idea is that the lamp is on the inside, and you see the outside. And if you look at me, and all of a sudden I've got shiny eyes, you go, oh, Bill's doing well today. Right? The lamp on the inside is doing great. And maybe there's some measure of truth in that, because I know the opposite is true, right? You come up to me in the fellowship, and there's, like, no shiny. And we all have seen that. You go... Bro says, you ain't, you're not doing so good. There's no shiny there. We, we get that. But I think there's, another, uh, there's another, another way to look at this. And that one, by the way, falls down, I think, because it, it still alludes to this idea that all I'm showing you is my shiny. And I'm still hiding behind this darkness here, right? And uh, so we get really good at hypocrisy and kind of like maybe lighten the shinies up, but there's nothing really going on good on the inside. And that's a terrible place to be. But we do. We walk in sometimes and say, if I look like I got no shiny, they're going to call me out, so I've got to act like I'm shiny. But I think there's another way to look at this. And I think that what it's talking about is it's saying you take the lamp and you put it on a stand, right? And the eyes of the lamp of the body, it's, it's uh, the light of the, the eyes. It's like this idea of the light shines, and then the quality of the eye determines about what kind of light penetrates to the inside. You see what I'm saying? And this is another common interpretation of what this passage is referring to. And so the challenge for you and me is, is it's, the light isn't us, it's the Word of God. The light is the truth, and the objective is for us to get that light inside the, of our body so that we completely expose who we are as though there's a lamp on a stand, it says at the end of this thing. And so this quality of our lenses are what's important. And we need to work on getting our eyes right so when we hear or see the Word of God, it does penetrate and gets inside and shines on us. Does this make sense? Now what if no teaching occurs from the pulpit that's the truth of the word of God? Or what if you're not exposed to the light? What's getting on the inside? And see, when the Pharisees are talking about this here, they're talking about this idea is, you know, this idea that you don't even enter. You hold the keys to the kingdom of life. You teachers of the law. And if you go back to Malachi, you're going to find out Malachi too. This is one of the, the broad condemnation God's making. He says, you prophets... You teachers of the law, you, you are meant to bring God's truth to the people. That's your job. These men were supposed to be the light. But because of their hypocrisy, they weren't the light. They had that knowledge, but they shut the light down. They're the ones that put it under a basket. They're the ones that put it into the cellar. And so those who are sitting in the pews, so to speak, who are eagerly awaiting the light, who worked hard to get their eyes right so they could hear the word and get it inside... No preaching is done where the truth is being done. They're holding it back and they're not giving it to us. You want to talk about condemnation and judgment. You be accused of that. And every time I get tempted to come up here and tell you a puppy dog story, you guys need to stone me. You need to throw paper at me and go, I want truth! Don't give me puppy dog stories! 
Let me share with you, you know, the, uh, what was the books we used to have? Chicken Soup for the Soul. You got to go, no, tear your clothes, rend your clothes. Away with him. I want truth. I want meat. Seriously, we need to have this attitude towards the word of God. And for us as leaders, especially we've got to be convicted by this because this is who he's condemning here. Hypocrisy at the top. He says, you leaders, you're the ones that have it. I've given you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. I've given you the wisdom of God and you hold it in your hands and yet you won't give it to anybody else. What an indictment. And hypocrisy at leadership leads there all the time. I think up at the top there, we saw here earlier too, he talks about this idea of these burdens. You know, the Bible's usually pretty clear. And maybe I don't need to explain this to you. But I will say that, you know, being a Christian's hard work, isn't it? Yeah. Being a Christian's difficult. And I, you give a lot of time, you give a lot of hours, you give a lot of money. I know you, everybody in the audience, I've been to your home, I've been to your place. I know you volunteer, you work over here at the church building. And, you know, sometimes you look up and you see your neighbors are not working quite as hard as you at life. We get that. We go back to our Bible. We say, this is awesome. God is what I really want. But sometimes when you look up and you've got your neck in the yoke and you're pulling hard and you're sweating and you're tired and you're sleepy and you're wishing you didn't have to do it, but you know you're going to do it because you love Jesus and you look over and that leader's not pulling the yoke. How does that make you feel? Yeah, you go, wait, wait, wait a sec. I'm, I'm pulling hard as I can and I'm a one-talent guy. Or I'm a two-talent sister. And there's that five-talent leader over there. And I don't know, he's not even breaking a sweat. And that's not because he's so talented. That's because he ain't pulling. This is what Jesus was condemning these teachers of the law for. And I can tell you that the long-term consequence, which is what I'm talking about at this point here, of hypocrisy is that people will get off, take off the yoke, and go back to the world. Because it's easier out there. You want to talk about condemnation and hypocrisy where it goes? It goes to less and fewer people who become Christians and stay disciples. You see, hypocrisy is the ultimate scatterer. People don't want to become part of something that's full of hypocrisy, and they certainly won't stay someplace where it's full of hypocrisy either. Amen? We didn't rehearse this, so I get the, I'm hearing Bill's stuff for the first time, so it's, I'm enjoying this as well as you guys are. It's awesome. It's hard to focus on what I'm supposed to be saying. Um, you know, as we, as we kind of move towards closing out, you know, one, one thing that Bill challenges me on often is never gloss over the difficult passages. And, you know, in, in, in verse 47 through, through verse 51, and Bill touched on this, this idea of holding this generation uh, responsible for the for the deaths of the prophets. Like, ooh, what you, what's that all about? How's, how's that happen? What, what's this all about? Right? And, um, you know, the interesting thing here is that, and I, again, I just see Jesus throwing us these lifelines. You know, he, he includes Abel in the list, in, in this list of prophets that have been killed. And I wouldn't normally think of, of Abel, Abel as a prophet outside of this passage. But, you know, one thing that's really neat about thinking of Abel as a prophet is, when you're talking about prophets being murdered is that we are able to gain some intimate knowledge of who specifically his murderer was and whose fate 
this generation, and I'll leave it to you to determine who's this generation, but whose fate this generation shares because of the responsibility of their blood. You know, who was Abel's brother and murderer? It was Cain. So Cain, we meet in Genesis chapter 4, and when we meet Cain, he's not a murderer. He's a farmer, and he's a man who takes his sacrifice before God. He's a religious guy. You know, but we know that something wasn't right, right, with his heart or something was going on. It didn't work out. You know, and God tried to help him. He said, hey, man, don't be downcast. Just do what's right. It's going to be okay. But he said, but if you don't, right, sin is crouching at your door. And, you know, what a, just imagine, you know, this personification of sin crouching at your door. And he tells him you have to master it. But we know that, obviously, that, that uh, Cain didn't master the sin. And, and again, like Bill was saying, you know, there, there was a brother at breakfast that pointed out that, you know, Cain, in his journey to become a murderer, became this sin that was crouching at his door. You, know, you imagine this sin crouching in wait for Cain, so Cain goes on and crouches in wait for his brother, Right? You know, this undealt with sin, this undealt with hypocrisy that, you know, there was, there was, a, there was a sacrifice going on with Cain. There were these religious observances. There was, this, there was this show of righteousness, but inside something wasn't right, and God challenged him to deal with it, just like he challenges us to deal with the, the, the inconsistencies between our outsides and our insides. You know, Cain didn't deal with it, and it was catastrophic, right? You know, the last verse I read was... Uh, chapter 12 verse 2 when it says everything that is concealed will be revealed and you know sometimes we think of that as this you know Jesus look oh I see it Tim but yeah I imagine there's some truth to that but you know sometimes it just comes out as a disastrous horrific sin you know and the, and the stakes are high I think as a follow up point to that and I it's a powerful example, isn't it, really, of some of the end results of hypocrisy. I think as Jesus finishes off and he points back, as we, we talked about at the introduction in chapter 12, he says, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. And, uh, you know, we talked three prophets. This is the third time Jesus speaks to the same problem in the church. Tim did a great job of fleshing out earlier this idea that Jesus tends to treat certain sins a certain way, expecting people to repent, but this issue of hypocrisy seems to be pretty heavy and pretty high on his list of what really is a sin. And when he says to them, listen, I want you to watch out, he doesn't say watch out for hypocrisy, which would have been a little bit shorter. He could have saved a few words there to give a tip to Jesus, but I don't think he was interested in shortening the words. He even had another thing to say, and he said, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And the point he's trying to make here is we understand the, 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 the purpose and the point of yeast. And he later on in another text, he says, you know, you've got to watch out for the yeast because it works its way through the whole dough. And so it's not a sin that you need a whole lot of. It's not a sin that all of a sudden there's this blatant thing. It's this little tiny thing that starts in each one of us and begins to grow if we don't capture it early. And so his warning is you watch out for the yeast because a little bit of yeast will leaven the whole dough. And that's how important it is for us to guard against hypocrisy. A couple closing thoughts on this idea of having uh, our, our minds warned against hypocrisy. I think we do a pretty good job of dealing with sin in our church. 
We study the Bible with people. We tend to go to Galatians chapter 5 or Mark chapter 7, as we was alluded to during the communion talk. We talk through these sins, right? And what are they? Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, debauchery, all these different blatant sins. And we confront each other on those sins. And later on, as we get older in the faith, maybe we move to the second stage of those things, which are what? Divisiveness, some of these other ones that are, we call more Christian sins. But let me ask you the question, how does hypocrisy stand up? I don't know we have a scale of sin, but I'd suggest to you, if Jesus is devoting this much time to it, how much challenge are we giving to each other with regard to the hypocrisy that exists in our own life? Are we even dealing with it? Is it more or more serious sin than some of these other ones that are listed there? I'd suggest you that they are. In closing the message today, I titled it Three Prophets. You can take it Tim, you can take it Cal, you can take it Bill, you can make it Three Prophets, which I like too, which is Abel, Zechariah, and Jesus himself. Or you can take it as Three Prophets, Tim, Bill, and the Word of God this morning. But I don't care how you want to take it, my challenge to you today is that three times we were reminded how important it is to deal with hypocrisy. We understand what it is in our own lives, we need to ask ourselves how we are hypocrites in our own hearts. And number two, we need to understand the consequences are fatal spiritually. And we need to deal with it as if our life was on the line, because it is. That's the message of the three prophets this morning. Thank you so much.